1: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm real Scott. Coming up on today's program... There's a new general election poll. Well, it's out with the focus on Georgia. So what do the numbers reveal for Democrats and Republicans? And might libertarian candidates actually influence the outcomes? We'll dig into the numbers with Fred Hicks. And coming up in just a moment, Georgia State Urban Studies professor Dan Emmerglock traces the history of Atlanta's housing issues. It's all in his new book, Red Hot City, Housing, Race and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta. Looking forward to that conversation as well, because y'all have been tweeting about it. But first, this full. Fulton County Sheriff Patrick Labatt has a very big ask from the Fulton County Commission today. During the commission's meeting, which at this time still might be going on, Sheriff Labatt gave a detailed presentation explaining all the duties and resources his department provides and the need for additional funding.
1: It's ultimately the request for $69 million as we get ready to move into 2023. I know it's a large ask, but it makes your sheriff's office safe because of life safety codes and where we are what that looks like for us is a safer Fulton County almost 60% of that let me be let me break it down even further is what I send each of you when I get it 55 to 60% of that is personnel
2: Labat also talked about the need to increase the K9 unit and to drive his ask home he asked the K he had the K9 unit present including the newest emotional support K9 member a golden retriever named Honey. Now we'll have more on the outcome of the vote tomorrow on Closer Look. In other news, Georgia U.S. Senator John Ossoff is calling on the U.S. Department of Justice to report accurately details that occurred in jails and deaths that occurred in jails and prisons. As Emily will Pearson reports, the senator in a hearing yesterday says there were nearly 1,000 uncounted deaths in the last year alone.
3: A Senate subcommittee found the failure to report deaths in correctional facilities was preventable, especially as states receiving certain federal funding are required to report how many people die in custody to the Department of Justice. But in the subcommittee's report, the investigation found widespread failures, including no data from 11 states or any jail death numbers in 12 states from October through December 2019. Advocates say without data, problems can't be addressed. Matthew Laughlin died while awaiting trial in Chatham County Jail near Savannah. His mother, Belinda Maley, shared a recording of the last time they spoke. I love you, Matthew. They're gonna cut us off you too. <laughs> Maley testified she tried everything she could to get her son out of jail and receive proper medical care for a heart condition. Horizon Health provided medical services to the jail at the time, and in a statement, said they are always deeply disappointed when confronted with serious medical occurrences, but they are part of the job of caring for patients in challenging circumstances. Congress members have demanded a solution from the Department of Justice and continued monitoring of the data. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News.
2: The state commission that oversees Georgia's stalled medical cannabis oil program is expected to move forward today. WABE politics reporter Raul Bali says it could bring access to thousands of Georgians who have been waiting
3: for years. The state's Medical Cannabis Commission is expected to award up to six production licenses for in-state manufacture of low-THC oil. For more than a year, the original group of approved producers have been tied up in the state's protest process. Whether it's the same producers or new producers that get the licenses, they have up to one year to be operational. Low-THC oil is used for a range of
0: conditions including ALS, certain seizure disorders, MS, and severe autism.
3: There are more than 42,000 patients and caregivers on Georgia's low THC oil registry. Raul Bally, WABE News, the state capital.
2: So, have you made your Thanksgiving Day travel plans? My sister just asked me last night. More than half of Georgians traveling this Thanksgiving will have their plans finalized by the end of the month. That's according to AAA. And as we hear from Christopher Austin, there's a reason that could be important.
3: If summer travel is any indication, the nation's airports and highways will be especially busy this Thanksgiving travel season. AAA says booking early will help get you a better price on flights that are more convenient for your schedule. The group's recent survey shows nearly half of respondents are nervous the airlines will cancel or delay their flights, while 12% worry about COVID. Meantime, AAA says travelers generally wait a bit longer to buy tickets for the December holidays. Nearly a third hold off until November or even December itself to make those purchases. Christopher Alston, WABE News. And finally, this weekend,
2: Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens and others will be at a site of the former Chattahoochee Brick Company. City officials say they'll discuss plans to honor the people who were victims of forced labor there at the turn of the 20th century. Lily Oppenheimer has that. Post-Civil War, the
1: Northwest Atlanta site used forced convict labor to mold bricks for construction to rebuild the South. Those bricks were produced mostly on the backs of black men who had been arrested and forced to work, often for petty crimes. Conditions were so brutal that many died there. The nonprofit group The Conservation Fund has now bought the 77-acre property. Now the land will have a memorial and park to honor those workers. The ceremony, which is open to the public, is set to start at 10 a.m., Lily Oppenheimer, WABE
2: News. And coming up next, just how did Atlanta spiral into its current housing crisis? That conversation, coming up next.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org.
2: gets old, the great Isaac Hayes. This is Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Roe Scott. Recently on the program, we talked about recommendations for Atlanta's neighborhood planning units. You know, those MPU's, as they were called, it was created by Maynard Jackson. And we played a clip from January of 1974 was after Jackson was being sworn in. It was his speech. And he centered on changes he hoped to implement, not only in this, how the city operated, but also
0: pending reorganization of our city government will be designed to open wide the doors of City Hall to all Atlantans and to make our city government more responsive to people needs and people problems. Foremost among our problems, other than the need for increased interracial cooperation and communication, is crime. Regardless of where we live in Atlanta, Whether it be Buckhead or Beaver Slide, Peachtree Hills or Perry Homes, Cabbage Town or Collier Heights, Carver Homes or Cascade Heights, regardless of what one does for a living, regardless of the insularity one's money may afford, everybody is crime's victim. And we all must make certain that this dread disease does not cause our great city's
1: demise."
2: I received a lot of feedback regarding that clip with Maynard Jackson. Many of you listeners noting how the issues back then are still some of the same issues today, nearly 50 years later. One of those issues, or rather now, a crisis, housing. And we've heard from so many different guests since this program began way back in 2015, when I was just a teenager. Elected officials housing affordability advocates, academics, civic and social leaders, faith leaders, people of various ages, ethnicities, income levels. But what has been clear, and I do mean abundantly clear, is this. What's happening in the city, many of the communities that have really stuck through the hard times, and now the redevelopment's coming, people are getting pushed out, and they are not there to reap the benefits when they've lived in a food desert or when their schools have been failing. Those people deserve to reap in the benefits of what this city is, is becoming.
1: It really is a ticking time bomb for our region and many people have turned away from it because it's not an easy answer.
3: We've lost about 5,000 affordable housing units in Atlanta uh, over the past couple years. Um, so, so rents are getting higher.
0: I'm concerned about what neighborhoods and what the city looks like 20 years from now. Do we have a belt line that is just for the affluent? Do we have a city that's just for the affluent? I think one of my initial evaluations is that we may have lost sight of people a
1: little bit.
2: There's 10,000 seniors that enter the market every day, but there's not 10,000 units being built for them to live in. This is a crisis stage right now. We're not approaching a crisis
3: stage. We're already in it. I would assume i am the target demographic i am a young millennial i really just don't know who the people are that are affording these places
2: if you look up on the horizon they change that coming is a tsunami (laughs) and if we don't match that shifting the way that we see the world
1: we know we're not going to be able to live here
2: voices from 2019 some are very familiar including my next guest question is how did atlanta get to this housing crisis level that it's at. Perhaps it can be found in a new book. It's called Red Hot City, Housing, Race and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta. And its author, Georgia State University Urban Studies professor Dan Emmergluck. He's been on this program many times. First time as an author. Welcome back to the program, Professor. I appreciate you taking the time.
0: Thank you for having me, Rose.
2: Before we dig into Red Hot City, I want to open up by taking a look at the entire nation, because as mentioned, Atlanta, look, this has been happening all over the nation, but it was something that David Dworkin from the National Housing Conference wrote. I'm going to read this quote here, quote, two issues define our new housing crisis. How we address them will determine how our economy bears the next recession and what kind of a country we will be in in the decades ahead. Professor, how much truth is in Dworkin's assessment?
0: There's a lot. There's um, Uh, It's true that a housing crisis that existed 20 years ago just in, or primarily in coastal large cities like San Francisco and New York, um, has spread throughout the country, Um, but Atlanta leads the list. We, We have some of the highest increases in rents, some of the highest increases in home values, and we have some of the weakest support systems. For affordable
2: housing. That being said, when you mentioned, you know, what could t- take place in the next 20 years, but listen, we're able to actually identify what's even taken place since I had you on that show in that roundtable. I'm going to go back to July 8th of 2019 of this program. You were part of a roundtable discussion regarding rents and eviction, and I asked you all and the other guests then about projects like the Quarry what they could potentially bring. Now, here's what you said.
0: The way I see Quarry Yards, it's one of the biggest developments that will hit the city in the next few years, and it's kind of rinse and repeat, meaning we had the Beltline, and we've now had over 10 years of really gentrification coming out of the Beltline, and we've had 10 years to change policy, Mm -hmm. and really policy hasn't changed So we have these very large developments that are basically engines of gentrification. Even if they put some affordable housing in the development, and it's just partly affordable housing, the ripple effect of this development is to drive up market values, drive up speculation, and make the neighborhood unaffordable for the people around it.
2: Even if it's not intended, but it does happen. That's That's right.
0: And it's not... The developer's job to do that, per se, it's the city's job and the state's job to change the fabric of policy so that there is affordable housing baked in, that homeowners around the neighborhood have their property taxes protected, and that renters have their rents limited in, in some way.
2: Now, the reason why I chose that clip, Professor, because it was that last part. It's the city and the state's job to change the fabric of policy so that there is affordable housing and all those other things that you mentioned, even in these last few years with a new administration, that still is at the core of what will possibly solve or help solve Atlanta's housing issues? You stand by that?
0: Oh, yeah. Um, Really, that's the ultimate theme of the book, Mm -hmm. um, except that it traces a longer arc of policy decisions. Back to the 20th century, but focusing particularly on the Olympics in the 90s and after that, mm-hmm. decision after decision to not put in place policies that would protect against speculation, that would bank land for affordable housing, both in the development of housing, uh, of housing after the Olympics, in the development of the Belt Line. In the surge in vacant properties during the foreclosure crisis when you could buy single family homes for 15 or $20,000 that are now worth Mm $300,000 decision after decision to not create affirmative affordable housing policies.
2: In Red Hot City, as you mentioning, you are chronicling all this through a historical timeline for Atlanta, and you're focusing on some themes. And I think what's in, in key for folks. I don't want to give too much away with the book. Is that you? You are taking it way back. You're taking it you know, post Reconstruction. And someone will say, "Well, can you really pinpoint that as a beginning?" metric for understanding how we got where we are. Now, I have my answer to that, but I'm not supposed to give it because I'm just a journalist, (laughs) but yes, you're starting there. So tell the listeners why that was important.
0: Yeah. You know, when I started writing this book um, and I had read a lot about the history of Atlanta and and reread it, um, it was clear to me that the political economy of the city and the region really does date back to especially the early to middle 20th century and the what's called in the political science literature the black-white urban regime Mm -hmm. of Atlanta. This partnership between the white corporate power structure and the developing black power structure and and in housing and urban development basically the partnership between them and the the lack of contesting that power structure and the lack of looking out for particularly lower income and working class blacks mm-hmm. in the city black households that was a that was a recurring thing as urban renewal came in as the city expanded in 1952 to capture Buckhead, and that was done so that the city wouldn't become majority black for a while. And then once the city did become majority black, the continued efforts to draw in a wider, more middle-class population, especially with the Olympics, and then the demolition of public housing to really you know, scatter those folks outside the city, um, and attempts to kind of clear the way for gentrification. What is your response
2: to someone who says, well, you also have to add in that there are federal policies or there lack of some federal policies that also contributed to that. We can think of redlining. We can think of, obviously, the discrimination for black Soldiers when they came back after fighting, everyone had access to all this funding. Well, depending on where you lived, you (laughs) depend on where you what you were going to get if you got anything at all. So, if someone says, "Well, professor, that's clear," you want to you want to focus on that maybe Atlanta policy, but you have to throw in federal policies or their lack of fair policies for blacks as well, and that in fact impacted all the cities and particularly cities like Atlanta.
0: That's an excellent comment, and I I think. uh as my response is, I, I I do lay significant blame at the footsteps of the federal government, both in the 20th century mm-hmm. and in the 21st century. Um, as you say, redlining, uh, urban renewal policies favored, you know, clearance of black neighborhoods, uh, even the development program. of our highways, our interstates. That's right. That's right. Although although arguably it it was a it was also a state role mm-hmm. there yeah. and that state highways were being used to separate and isolate black neighborhoods even before federal highways were. Mm-hmm. um so all levels of government and very importantly state government uh that's one of another key theme of the book state government has really made it hard for local actors to be more progressive to do things like fair housing policies or rent control or things like that. I also talk about the huge missed opportunities after the foreclosure crisis, Mm -hmm. when the federal government essentially steered Wall Street capital towards buying foreclosed homes. Mm -hmm. And Atlanta was kind of what the private equity guys called a strike zone for their capital. And that was encouraged by the feds instead of encouraging those homes to be you know basically made available to black families to folks who had been hit hard by the crisis or for long-term affordable housing they were pushed really into the speculative highly corporate single family rental market
2: i often use post or pre and post olympics as a metric for me i moved here Ninety sticks. Ninety six. Started coming down. Ninety five. I tell the story. I lived off Beaufort Highway. I had a one bedroom. Nine hundred square feet. Five hundred forty five dollars in 1996. I was living large, professor. Now, you don't want to know what we're paying now. But I think the the post the pre and post Olympics is a pretty good metric. When folks look at folks like yourself, look at how Atlanta's current housing crisis got to where it is, because we saw development come in. But also, you write about this, too, because I think it's important to get to this. You write, quote, after it became clear that Techwood would be redeveloped somehow, the site's vacancy rate began rising. In June 1990, before the city had won the games, the occupancy rate was over 92 percent. By April 93, after the AHA had stopped admitting new tenants after previous tenants moved, it had dropped to less than 50 percent. By August of that year, it had fallen to 38%. And then you go on to talk about how it fell to 6% by the end of 94. How big of a role does the reimagining, you know, whatever you want to call it, of the Atlanta Housing Authority and with new leadership coming in, how cr- critical has that been and where we are now with Atlanta's housing issues?
0: Yeah, uh, it, very critical. Um couple things. One is, as you say, federal policy played a role and the kind of planned abandonment of public housing by Congress and the federal government, the lack of funding contributed to the decay of many public housing sites across the city. But Atlanta Atlanta had one of the worst performing public housing authorities in the country in the 80s. And 90s, and it's true that uh, Techwood, East Lake Meadows, th- these were not great public housing locations. Sure. I don't want to romanticize this, sure. but the first proposal from Hope from the Hope Six program that came in '92, um, the, the federal program, to use Hope Six monies for Techwood was not to knock it down. It was to the first proposal was to renovate Techwood mm-hmm. because this was the first new money, federal money coming in to public housing in a long time, and the mayor at the time, Mayor Campbell, mm-hmm. appointed Renee Glover, mm-hmm. and uh, head of the HA, and they had a very clear ideology in if you in in all of the reading on on this stuff, mm-hmm. that they wanted to basically, what I call displace and replace public housing residents with new quote unquote, mixed income developments, but where the mixed income meant very few low income, truly low income residents, some what they call and I don't like this term workforce housing. Mm-hmm. And then Uh, really a majority market rate housing. So the number of units shrunk dramatically at these sites and the value of these properties over time increased a lot. And that in my mind was the real motivation behind the public housing, quote unquote, transformation, but really public housing demolition in the city. And again, I think it, it was, if you look at the locations, Heckwood, mm-hmm. Grady Homes, mm-hmm. Eastlake, these are all places that have really been the beneficiaries or at least the land values of public housing as revaluing that land for development. To me, that was the real purpose of this stuff. And we didn't, the housing authority didn't even track well the residents who were in those locations mm-hmm. and what happened to them. So it was planned abandonment, essentially, particularly of Tuckwood, as you say. It was essentially fully occupied around 1990. Mm-hmm. And well before the redevelopment happened, it emptied out because the housing authority disinvested from the site.
2: You mentioned Mayor Campbell. And if you can, if you feel you could, I had to do an assessment from with your research, because I played manor Jackson. I always play Maynard Jackson clips and people email me, why you play Maynard Jackson clip?" I think it's important because I think that's always another metric that people want to use when we talk about how Atlanta has progressed or is progressing or as someone told me last night is regressing. But you look at the, all, the, all the administrations, Maynard Jackson, Andy Young, Bill Campbell, Shirley Franklin, Kasim Reed, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and now Mayor Dickens. Are you able to give the reader any insight into any of those administrations that was on track to trying to figure this out in terms of its housing affordability
0: and its issues? Sure. Um, You know, the book is not an attempt to raid administrations or single out administrations in any way, because to be honest, I think in the long run, they mostly, uh, with some exception in the first Jackson administration, did kind of follow Mayor Hartsfield's urban regime model of Mm -hmm. of basically co-opting black leadership with, but where the real power remained with corporate leadership. Um, Mayor Jackson tried to push back on that in his first term. He clearly tried to prioritize the needs of low-income residents in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, He got very quick pushback from the corporate community, he basically got called into the principal's office if you will and was treated with severe hostility by kind of this existing power structure that he was interrupting. Well take that I'm for our, afraid... take that well, well hold on Go take ahead. that for Go our ahead. listeners
2: a little bit further when you say called into the principal's office i mean can you be a little bit more specific you talking about the in terms of the the big economic
0: Called into Coca-Cola's office, to
2: be more specific. That's what I wanted
0: to hear. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, so, you know, the regime was dominated and still is by these large corporate players. The the particular corporations change sometimes over time, although Delta and Coca-Cola are still in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And the particular actors change. But that's, you know, there was a lot of, uh, I mean those folks opposed Jackson being elected in the first place, mm-hmm. but they made it very clear that the city would be hard to run if he didn't change some of his policies. And of course he was successful, particularly with contracts at the airport and a variety of other things. But I think historians, uh, rec, uh, assessment of Jackson is that by the second Jackson term, it didn't look that different mm-hmm. than a lot of other mayors. Um, and, You know, I actually think uh, uh, I have significant admiration for uh, Mayor Young, but I think Mayor Young's term really kind of reinforced the notion that this was going to be, uh, that the regime was ascendant, that uh, corporate power would be championed and, you know, explicitly trying to draw in global capital into the city and not taking into account the needs of low-income African Americans.
2: Is Atlanta at a point, and I've asked this question before, whether you're talking about what did or did not happen under these administra- administrations, is Atlanta now at a point where you, it's too late to try to fix it? It's too late to implement new policies, the fabric that you talked about. And it, is it too late
0: uh, no, it's not too late. But with every decision, big decision, every big project, every Beltline, every Westside Park, every major development decision, it is becoming harder and harder. Meaning if we had, you know, in 2005 or earlier, had really planned to assemble land around the Beltline like folks are doing with the 11th Street Bridge Project Mm -hmm. in Anacostia in Washington, DC. If we had really done that and prioritized land assemblage before trail building, because that's important because once the trails come in, the values go up, Um, if that had been prioritized, if federal money during the foreclosure crisis had been targeted around the Beltline to maintain land for affordable housing instead of just flipping properties to homeowners and to some degree speculators if that ethic if if the Beltline hadn't been seen as a land speculation vehicle rather than a you know an opportunity to help existing residents I think it would, well, I know it would be much easier and we could have acquired much more land and done much more affordable housing. Do I think it's too late? No, Mm -hmm. it's just much harder and much more expensive to do now. Part of this book is a warning to other cities,
2: frankly. Okay, well, that being the case, then since you brought the Beltline, I want to get to that if we can. From when it was envisioned by Ryan Gravel to where it is now, and i and we could have probably ask him what his thoughts on that I, probably I will later but are you do you are you saying that the beltline has been more of a unintentional gentrification metric than it was than it should have been are you are you laying blame with the beltline as being again critical to where we are now with Atlanta's housing issues
0: well, it's hard for me to say no to that because <laughs> the title of the chapter is yeah. <laughs> the belt line as a gentrification machine. So I I can't can't say no to that. On the other hand, you know, I, I won't answer the question, is the belt line has the belt line been a failure or not? No, I'm I'm that's not the point. The point is from its impact on the city in terms of demographics, housing affordability, and and the book does not say the belt line is the only factor. Sure. Of course. Um but it was a huge, huge factor. And I think it was fundamentally implemented in a way that kind of brought about the downsides. I mean, if you read the Emerald Necklace report that Alexander Garvin wrote in 2004, the word affordable, the word low-income housing, none of those words appear in a report that's, dozens of pages long, yet he talks about, yeah, it's already increasing property values Mm -hmm. as a good thing. And this was 2004. This was even before the the tax allocation district. So clearly, the investment community saw it as a gentrification project. In fact, one developer in 2005 called the Beltline, the, the most exciting thing to happen in the since Sherman burned Atlanta. I mean, the notion that Hmm. this is going to make land much more valuable. So if I can get in on the ground floor, right? And we also developed the funding mechanism that was dependent on land values rising Mm -hmm. without setting aside nearly enough money to do affordable housing.
2: Finally, Professor, then as we look at this, you're saying it's not too late. Is this then again, man, if I had a dollar for every time I I said this word, is this a holistic approach to the change that needs to happen? It's a public private partnerships. You mentioned city. We talked a lot about city. didn't really talk much about the state, but the state and federal. And as you know, trying to get everybody on the same page, let alone the same room, is a task in itself. But is this something that we just have to policy our way out of? Cities have to policy their way out of this crisis.
0: Yeah, we have to policy our way out of. And let me talk about quickly about public-private partnership. You know, the term is lauded in Atlanta and the public-private, I I write about this some in the book, the Mm -hmm. public-private partnerships in Atlanta tend to, you know, benefit the private a lot more than the public. Um, And they tend to lead to, Really, not public policy-driven solutions, but by solutions that benefit private interests, particularly land-owning, property-owning interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to be naive. Uh, this the book does not focus only on city policy. Sure. It definitely talks about the limitations imposed by state policy with a a red state legislature, um, but. It's, you know, the the mayor of Atlanta, the, the council, city council in Atlanta, being the biggest city in the state and being, you know, having a huge amount of property wealth needs to take the lead to organize at the state level
1: mm-hmm.
0: to get policy changes. Even Democrats in the legislature don't seem to prioritize affordable housing, in my experience. A few do. But it's these are not issues that the legislature seems to want to deal with. It's extremely difficult to get even a minor cosmetic change to things like tenant protections. So cities like Atlanta need to take the lead to create change, both at the city level and at the state level.
2: The book is Red Hot City, Housing, Race and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta. It's author, Georgia State University Urban Studies Professor Dan Immergluck. been a guest on this program so many times. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I feel like we could really have gone the whole hour.
0: Thank you so much, Rose. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. All right, unless you're driving or on one of those electric scooters, raise your hand if you're just a little bit sick and tired of all the campaign ads. Of course, it's a lot right. I know. It's a lot right now and will be for another month. But in other words, hang in there, everybody. So... We'll deal with it. Meanwhile, a new general election poll, courtesy of the AJC, is out with a focus on Georgia. Now, depending on whom you ask and what political party they're supporting, it's good news, not so good news, or still a toss up. So, time to dig into the numbers with our numbers guy, Atlanta based political strategist Fred Hicks. But today he's wearing his polling demographer hat. So to speak. Welcome, Fred.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Rose. Glad to be on.
2: Do you have a demographer hat that you wear when you're doing this
1: program? I do. I do. I do. It has all kinds of numbers, like pi repeated out to the 25th, you uh, know, extent or something.
2: All right. I don't know. So anyway. I printed out all I don't know 20 some pages of <laughs> of the AJC 2022 general election poll. All right. So first of all, just in general, your overall view of the poll and be fair in your analysis.
1: Absolutely. You know, the one thing we always say is that polls are a snapshot of where things are at that particular moment. And so as we are about a month away from early voting, this gives you an idea of where things would be or how things would go if the electorate looks like those who were polled and if the election held were held today. And so what I would say to that is that there's good news and bad news uh, for both Republicans and Democrats in this uh the one thing i would say of course is that at any point in any poll it's better to be ahead than behind sure. but being behind does does not mean that uh, that 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 is the final story you know we have a long way to go over the next uh, 40 plus days and and one month until the election starts so it's going to be interesting to see how, how how all sides all parties or both parties play this but there's a lot to like uh, if you're a Republican, there's, and there's some definitely some signs for hope um, if you're Democrats in the survey.
2: Well, let's start, obviously, with the big one. I mean, of course, when you talk about uh, Warnock and Walker, um, any surprise there in what these polling numbers revealed there, that Warnock was ahead?
1: Yeah, so, you know, they're fairly consistent with a lot of the other polls, and that's one of the things you look for when you're benchmarking. Now, the interesting thing about this survey is if you look at the crosstabs, and you scroll down and you look and see um, who who participated in the survey. Mm-hmm. You'll see that this is slightly more Republican than Democrat. So about 52% of the respondents were Republican. And so for Warnock and um, and Walker to be in a tie, a tie in this survey, what that means is that if the election looks like 2020 mm-hmm. or 20 you know 2018, where it's basically 50-50 that in reality Warnock would do a little bit better. So if, if there's if fifty two percent of the electorate is, is Republican, then you know, then then it's it's a toss up. Looks like we might be going into a runoff. But if the electorate looks like in like it has the last few cycles, then this is actually really good news for, for Senator Warnock. It's not the kind of news that he'd want. I mean he'd want to be up five, seven points, but we know when everything normalizes and you get to the actual election, uh, then you, you can expect him, based on this, to be a little bit ahead. So, um, so in uh, other words, uh, well,
2: well, hold on. So in other words, you're saying even even though 1.6 in a poll that seems to skew Republican, that's not necessarily good news for Warnock, just even being ahead a little bit.
1: No, no, I mean it's good news. I'm saying that you can expect to have a bigger margin mm-hmm. because the elect- if the if this election, and we'll talk about this what this comes down to, which is turnout. If this election looks like November 2020, or even looks like November 2018. Then you can expect him to have um, a little bit better performance, probably another point or two. So you can see him having winning by two to three points over 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 Herschel Walker. Uh, one of the other things about this survey is that we know that statewide elections tend to be about 54, 55 percent uh, comprised of women voters, mm-hmm. and this is more this is closer to 50-50. And so when you talk about issues that are of, of import to women. And, and looking at how Senator Warnock and, and Herschel Walker are performing with women, again, when this if this election looks more like the last two elections, then that looks that that's really, really promising for uh, for Senator Warnock. One of the other things is that when you look at this you see that um, that Republicans like Brian Kemp way more than they like Herschel Walker. And that's the other thing. So with this survey being comprised of 52 percent of the rep- respondents being, uh, Republicans and, and Warnock being ahead—that uh, that's that's excellent, excellent news for Senator Warnock, and really troubling for uh, for Herschel Walker.
2: Well, let's get to uh, Governor Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams because he, with this poll results, I mean he has a what some would call a a a very big, huge lead based on this. But applying that same theory that you just said about Warnock and Walker, does it apply to? Kemp and Abrams, considering that Governor Kemp has this, according to this, this sizable
1: lead? Yeah, so I don't think anyone, including the governor's camp, thinks that Stacey Abrams is going to be at 42% when it's all said and done. That's a snapshot mm-hmm. for the survey that leans more conservative. I think that most of us believe that she will be at least at 48 or 49%. Um, and so, so, again, assuming that Democrats do a great job of turning out their vote, so what they're looking for when you're the incumbent, is you're looking number one, to be over at or over fifty percent. so check that. Mm-hmm. And then number two, you're you're looking to be if I were the governor's team, I would really want to be at fifty two, at least fifty two percent because fifty two percent of the respondents were Republicans. Now he's doing a great job of holding a Republican vote, but there's still room for growth there with growth uh, with him there. So while it's good news and for for the governors, um, it's not as good as you'd like it to be. And again, I think for for Stacey Abrams and the Democrats, you know that you're going to do better. But this does what this does mean is that it's time to really ramp up your GOTV activities and to make sure that the election. Of the electorate. Well, well Fred, how like much more can
2: how much more can candidates I don't care what side you're on how much more can candidates ramp up the TV
1: and, and radio ads? My goodness! Oh, I said <laughs> I said GoTV, TV. Oh, okay. I said Geo TV. Oh. Now, 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 <laughs> TV is that that's exactly it, right? I, I think that enough with the TV, enough with the radio, uh, unless of course you're you know donating to WABE. No, but, we, don't know, don't some, kind of we don't take political uh, ads. We don't take political ads, right? and I'm glad but, we don't. Um, we don't do that. Mm-mm, no. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I'm glad we don't know also, uh, but at this point, it's time enough for the TV and even enough with the mail. It's time to really invest in the ground game. I'm talking about phones. I'm talking about doors. I'm talking about direct voter contact. Um, you know, we're already at the stage, I think, where people are tuning out, tuning out TV. And so you can take that money and put it into other activities. But you've, um, you know, if you're Democrats, you've got to motivate your, your base to vote. And I think if you're Republicans, if you're Brian Kemp, which is different than Herschel Walker, uh, you you know, you're you're trying to hold steady and, um, and whether what's coming, but again, you know, TV at this point, I think you're seeing, um, diminishing marginal returns Mm -hmm. and now you have, you have to shift your, uh, you have to shift your stuff to GOTV. And I'm sorry, I'm using an acronym. GOTV stands for get out the vote. Mm -hmm. So that's when you see people knocking your doors, calling your, you know, calling your phone, offering people rides to polls and things like that. So that's that's when you're actually trying to make sure that people turn out and vote.
2: Okay, speaking of folks who may or may turn out to vote and may not, um, you look at the Libertarian candidates and then you look mm-hmm. at the undecided. If you are, mm-hmm. what role, I'm going to start with the Libertarians, what role could that voter base play in
1: here? You know, that's a great question, Rose. I'm glad you asked that. You know, in Georgia, we have a rule that if you don't get more than 50 50 percent plus one of the votes, then you go into a runoff. And that's what we saw in 2020 going into 2021. And so, again, when you look at the governor, I mentioned right now you'd really want to be at least 52 Mm percent. They are in danger of sliding into a runoff. And based on and that used to be great news for Republicans up until 2020 and 2021. And so. Again, for the governor, he's not just trying to be the top vote getter. He's trying to clear the field. And this poll had about a 3.3% mm-hmm. margin of error. So, again, what that means is that uh, he could be 3.3 points above or 3.3 points below. So when you, if you're him, if, if, I'm, if I if were on his team, my goal in this poll would have been to be at 533 because that means that we've, in, in effect, we've definitely cleared the 50% threshold. And so, uh, you know, libertarians... Tend to get somewhere between one and a, one to two percent mm-hmm. anything over two percent pretty much guarantees a runoff and so i think in this case um that's what the governor has to he has to watch out for i think uh for the democrats i think that you know libertarians can be your friend to an extent and uh but you've got to get every single vote that you can you got to get back to that 48.52 percent threshold at least um by the beginning of october And then that that 48.52 is what Stacey Abrams received in 2018, so you can then try to get over the hump. But, you know, at this stage, it's really going to sounds basic to say it, Mm -hmm. but it's really going to come down to who turns out who comes out to vote. And so we look at these things about enthusiasm. Right. Mm -hmm. So are you able to are you able to create enthusiasm? Are you able to create a sense of motivation? Uh, for Democrats, you know that Republicans are motivated. Georgia Republicans are are not happy about losing the state. They're not happy about the Biden agenda. They're not happy about a lot of things that Democrats well, and have that's done. My so next que- that, that,
2: that's my next question, Fred, because then for both of these major parties here, do you want to focus on the now and the immediate in terms of how people are Trying to live their their current quality of life, which, of course, we know with the inflation and recession looming and all that. Or do you try to gamble still on the 2020 election was stolen January 6th? All of that. Do you try to still engage your voters with some of the the past or you got to focus on, hey, how is this voter doing right now? And I've got to I've got to hit them where. They're living. I got to focus on how are you doing right now? What's your quality of life?
1: Yeah, you know, the Republicans have made a pretty clear decision to move beyond the 2020 election and focus on inflation and quality of life. Um, all the commercials seem to indicate that. All the mail seems to indicate that. You know, the, this poll came out yesterday and the, probably the best news for Democrats that came out yesterday obviously it was not the poll, but was that uh, the news that President Trump is looking at coming to Georgia after the Senate debate on October 14th. And so in support you know, of uh, in
2: support couple. of Walker, because I, I doubt he's coming to right. support Brian Kemp, right?
1: Right. Or right. Raffensperger. Walker, Walker and Burt Jones,
0: Burt Jones. Uh,
1: his, his his endorsed candidate for lieutenant governor. But that's great news for Democrats. We talked about the last, the last two times where was on. I was on is that that's the one thing, if you're Republicans, you don't want to have happen because it takes people off the fence. Listen, you know, again, whether whether people like it or not. Uh, Republican voters rejected Donald Trump in 2020. They de- rejected his, his candidates in 2021 and in the Republican primary. Again, Rappensberger and Brian Kemp were not Donald Trump people. He did not mm-hmm. want them, and they defeated his people. So having Donald Trump come uh, right at the start of early voting is really the worst thing that can happen to Republicans right now. Is one of the best things that can happen for Democrats to, to swing those independents and those undecideds um, over to the Democratic column. Because How? it puts Trump right back, center, and on the ballot metaphor. Might we or, see
2: the Republicans statewide here at least try to present a unified force, much like we might expect with the Democrats? I mean, just so you can get folks to vote down ballot, the same party, is there a different strategy here? It seems like it would be for the Democrats as opposed, as opposed to the Republicans.
1: Yeah, I think they're two different strategies. You know, Republican voters are different than Democratic voters, um, and so the, the number one question that both sides are going to have to try to figure out is, um, do you just want to try to pull out your, can you win with your base, or do you need to try to pull some other people over, and that's going to dictate a lot of things. So, again, if you're trying, if you're Governor Kemp and you're saying, okay. I need to hold the base and pull a few people over, then you don't really want to be with Burt Jones or Herschel Walker, two Trump-endorsed people, because that pulls you in a different direction, and, and, and it puts you pulls you into a debate that you don't want to be in. Again, the 2020 election, extremism and things like that. Um, if you're the Democrats, running as a slate is very, very, very – can be very effective based on the diversity. Again, you have uh, a white male and Charlie – Bailey you have mm-hmm. an, the first Asian American and B win you have black women you have a lot of diversity and a lot of and some geographic diversity that such that I don't think honestly I don't think the democrats are, are taking advantage of that when you when you're talking about uh, schools you're talking about AG, uh, attorney general and all of that so it would be more beneficial to the democrats to embrace the slate and to highlight the diversity and the background of the people up and down the ballot but I think if you're Brian Kemp you want to keep running your own race you mm-hmm. don't really want to be attached to the Herschel
2: Walker or Burt Jones. So I got about or a Burt minute Burt. left. Let me get this in for you. Is there a voting block that is crucial for either party? Last time we talked about Stacey Abrams saying she needs the black male vote. Is there a key voter block here for the Democrats or the Republicans? They have to get a certain percentage in to win. Hey, let's yep. just say for a governor.
1: Absolutely. So you see that Stacey Abrams is really struggling with the male vote in this poll. She's below 40 percent. So mm-hmm. black men would be the easiest group for her. So absolutely, I still believe, actually, I believe even more so that black men are an, a vital voting block for her. Um, and I think for when you look at the Senate race, given that both of them are, are black men, that being Walker and, and Warnock, that's the easiest group to go after in both cases. So uh, beyond that, I think that um, pro-choice women so even if they are even if they are fiscally conservative, mm-hmm. I think that women you know forty five and under, particularly the thirty to forty five age range uh, who tend to be presidential election only voters, I think that's a, the second most important block Again, if you're talking about the heartbeat bill and reproductive health sure. and things of that nature. So I think those are the two groups, black men and then women, uh, presidential year election only women who are thirty to forty years of age 30 to
2: 45 and so all right atlanta based political strategist and polling demographer fred hicks as always we appreciate the conversation just bear with us so you say bear with it one more month for all those ads huh
1: at (laughs) at least one more month we go into a runoff you know that hey (laughs) So yeah, that means we're going to see this instead of uh, parades for Thanksgiving.
2: All right. Thanks a lot, Fred. I appreciate it. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer for today was Daniel, but Kevin Rinker's our engineer because he rides a bike. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any others. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org, as you all have been doing throughout the show. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights, at 7 p.m., as well as on our podcast. So, subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in depth, long form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the
0: air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information... Visit our election hub at
2: wabe.org slash election 2024.